by what amounts to coincidence, there's a lot of Season 3 episodes that, as I was talking about previously, I ended up re-watching a bunch, thanks to having the VHSs. <clears throat> now, obviously this is slightly before I made my own collection of the specific episodes I really liked, which took more effort and a second VHS, but this was still, I don't know, maybe it was just total coincidence, but for some reason there were a lot of reruns of Season 3 when Season 3 was going out. And what's weird is my friend Pax, who lived in a completely different state when this was happening, had the exact same experience. I found myself wondering if this was just when they started really pushing TNG onto as many networks as possible. Any other people who want to give thoughts on that? And I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts and feelings as usual. This episode is directed by Winrick Colby, and I really hope I'm pronouncing his name right, because I actually have a lot of respect for the man. He's an interesting director in that he has a very clear style that he's very good at, and that he's actually not that great at everything else. And I don't mean that as an insult. It's just, I feel like when they used him properly, he was awesome. Just to give you a quick short list of episodes he's worked on, he did Our Man Bashir and The Siege of AR-558 over on Deep Space Nine, as a couple episodes you might recognize over here on TNG, including Darmok and All Good Things. So, the man has some chops, and what he's good at is tight-focused, Center character-centric stuff, really bringing things down to the individual, which is appropriate because this is a bottle show. This is actually one of Winrick Colby's earliest works. He'd done some work earlier, but this is one of the first times where he was given the complete reins as director. Um, and so yesterday's Enterprise was expensive. I think I've already mentioned that, actually. And they were trying to uh, pull back on that. This is the usual production of a television show. You have a rough budget for your entire season in terms of both time and money, and you have to allocate that appropriately. And that's one of the things that they decide before they even start filming the very first episode is where they want to put what, where. And occasionally there's a little bit left over where they can use extra on other episodes, and occasionally they go over, which means they have to pull back on future episodes. And this has been a really big part of t uh, Star Trek's production since TOS. This is just a normal television thing. It isn't until far more modern television that the idea of a show basically just being given, here's whatever money you need, and told to go run with it, became a normal thing. There's a reason... Uh, there used to be the concept of a TV show looking and feeling different from a movie. Not because it's an episodic series of things, but because the budget was always lower. But I digress. Point being, this is a bottle show specifically designed to pull back on time and budget. And they apparently, according to interviews, actually managed this to both under time and under budget. Not the first or last time they'll manage that in season three. And I point that out. Because I have a pet theory, which I have no evidence of other than the things I just mentioned, that one of the reasons they were able to throw so much into the best of both worlds was because they were already doing okay across season three. For the first season in TNG history, they were actually coming in under the in the black, basically. In the green, really. They were under budget and under time, and they had the availability to really work with Best of Both Worlds Part One in order to make it one of the most well-known episodes of Star Trek of all time. So, I also want to mention, though, one other little side note. Everyone's aware of the little concept, uh, the little concept, wow, the little story that Patrick Stewart wasn't happy with his role and, in Best of Both Worlds, was actively thinking about bowing out of the show. It's one of the reasons that that episode had so much imp uh, impact to people at the time, because they thought that pa uh, Picard might actually die. Thing is... <laughs> I'm not sure why Patrick Stewart was thinking that. See, here's the thing. By all accounts, by all the interviews that survive and all the, the memoirs and all that, 
it sounds like Patrick Stewart was unhappy with not being given a lot to do as an actor, which is weird because A, Patrick Stewart has been given a fairly large amount to do as an actor, and B, a lot of season three has been specifically catering to Patrick Stewart. This episode's another good example. He gets to play two roles in this episode in a very intimate, nuanced, and personal way. And it's very difficult for an actor to portray basically a character and a character portraying a character and still make those two distinct while at the same time making them similar enough to sell it. That's a hard thing to do. And he's good enough to do that. I mean, he, he, there's a reason Patrick Stewart gets so much praise for his acting prowess. But I mention that because it really feels like there was a, a de definitive effort on behalf of the producers and creators to satisfy Patrick Stewart, and yet he was still thinking about leaving. I'll look more into this when we get into the best of worlds. I just wanted to comment on it here because this is his show. This is a Picard episode. Uh, the only other major players in this one are, the, as of the guest stars, are Riker and Crusher. Although it was nice to see Crusher actually get some time. I'll talk about that when we get there. So, I want to give praise to this episode for, for a degree of competency. One of the things that always irritated me in early Voyager, and i got to say it that way because they got better later on. Every time I say that, I keep wanting to rewatch Voyager. Isn't that just the weirdest thing? Anyways, <laughs> I like Voyager. Um, one of the things that bothered me about early Voyager, though, is incompetency. Sir, there seems to be an alert on the screens. Really? Well, what can you tell me about it, Ensign? I'm not sure. kind of seems like something's going wrong with... There's some kind of energy wave heading toward us. An energy wave? How strong? Well, you know, and it, everyone would just take forever to react to everything in emergency situations. I can't even believe... <coughs> even Tuvok, who is usually the pillar of competency in Voyager, in several early episodes, especially regarding the Kazon, was like, well, I'm in a situation where I have the drop on the Kazon, and they've already invaded my ship, actually breached the hull to get on board, and are actively out with weapons up. I think I'm going to abandon the, the, the surprise I have and order them to surrender rather than just start shooting them with my phaser, which has a wide setting, by the way, which is shown on Voyager, although fake Tuvok uses that, but still. Competency, right? So anyways, at the beginning of this episode, Picard gets beamed away. Data immediately detects the energy transmission, and they're like, huh, okay. Pic Riker says, within seconds, within seconds, Riker to Picard, no response. He turns to Worf, and Worf is just, bam, zooming down there with a security crew, no less. And gets there, taps the thing once, waits about a second, and then starts using a security override. Every step of that was awesome. I mean, there's ways to do that even better, based on the technology we have in Star Trek, but at least they were freaking trying to be competent. By the way, can I just say, I really like this... this uh, Cold Open. This is one of the best teasers I've seen in Star Trek. Seriously. At least in terms of sheer construction. There's more interesting teasers and more impacting teasers, but this one is brilliantly constructed. If I ever actually have a chance to teach... Um, I, I mentally think of this as the hook, because that's really the point of a teaser, to hook the audience in, either people who are seeing it for the first time, or to make sure the people who are just flipping over or left it on after whatever previous show was on are interested enough to keep watching. So that's the point of a teaser. Hook you in, right? doesn't really apply to modern TV as much, but still. So you got the hook there. And 
this is brilliantly constructed because it conveys all of the information about the premise and basically the episode in a very short period of time. I wrote it down two minutes and eight seconds. So Picard's relaxing. So, okay, we're starting off not in a dangerous situation. He's beamed away. Okay, so he's been kidnapped. And they notice he's gone, so there's something wrong. Picard is going around his area trying to figure out where he is. And we see there's two other people there. One who's sleeping, one who's meditating. And it's a very small, confined area that immediately visually translates, er, communicates the idea of trap or prison or cell. Something like that, right? You immediately get the confined nature of it within seconds. Picard tries his thing. There's a little zzz, you know, the, the I got no signal noise. And then he says, Picard to Enterprise. Picard to anyone receiving that transmission. So he's out of the loop or far enough away. All of this is being conveyed within seconds, by the way. Then Worf pu pulls open the door, and fake Picard is there and says, is in the same outfit, with the same book, and says, is there a problem, Lieutenant? And now we know there's a duplicate or a replacement. All of the pieces of the story are all there right at the beginning, and we already know the hook. Very well constructed. So, it cuts to, uh, let's, let's, let's talk about, God, what do I want to talk about first? Let's talk about the prison side of things first, shall we? So first of all, we find out that uh, Laval, or whatever his name is, was there for 12 days. Where's the restroom? I know that's a really strange question to ask, but considering that they bother to understand that they need food, there are two other basic sentient be biological being amenities that are not addressed. Water and having to push waste out of the body. That's that's the nature of biology. I only point that out because they are, most of the rest of the construction of the episode is fairly tight and makes a degree of sense. The only real flaw in the episode, and I'm just going to say this right up front, is that the level of technology the aliens show feels a little bit inconsistent. It could be argued to make sense. Any species that has significant teleporter technology and is naturally telepathic to the point of being basically identical with each other is going to be a species with significant advantages. That being said, though, their ability to just kind of keep up with all the things that they do is just a little bit too hand-wavy. It would make more sense if someone with significant actual power, like Q, for example, which is one of the only exam examples in Star Trek, was actually the one guiding and directing all of this. Now, I know I hate to, to resort to the Q thing, but I'm only using that as an example. These guys are way on top of everything. With the level of advancement of, say, the Federation, they could probably manage all this stuff because Federation tech is through the goddamn roof. And yet these people are flummoxed by a force field. So... Anyways, <clears throat> that's my only complaint. Moving on quickly. I'm sure a lot of you will hate me for that complaint, which is totally cool. Uh, I love hearing your guys' differing thoughts. I really do. It's, it's kind of a treat every time I wake up Monday and Tuesday morning to check the, check the comments, the fresh comments, you know, the ones that are there before I've, you know, because the videos go live at 5 a.m. my time. That's automated process, obviously. So I wake up, you know, hours later, and there's been time for people to read and watch and be like, I think you're the worst person in the world. And I love reading those comments. Well, I love reading most of your comments. <laughs> um, so then they try the door lock, and the, he mentions the punishment thing. Now, I'm a little surprised Picard didn't pick up on this earlier, but then again, I've been a consumer of fiction for most of my life. So when I see the situation, my first thought is that door is a trap, that it doesn't actually control anything, and it's actually not a part of anything. What kind of prison cell has the door lock on the inside of the cell? 
No, Picard had the right of it. This is a test. They have put the carrot in front of you, and they're seeing what you're willing to do and how you're willing to do it to interact with it. I also can't help but point out that both times they interacted with the actual door mechanism and got in there, they had the ensign do it, a.k.a. the actual aliens, but I digress. So, I like the little tidbit where Picard tries to communicate math. It's a subtle little touch, and it shows some of the understanding and... and God, I don't know what to put this. I suppose understanding of different cultures and acknowledgement of first contact protocols that I really like that TNG did several times. There's three episodes that really touch on that. This one, Darmok and First Contact, which we'll get to those other two later. And in all of them, you see more of an understanding than just what you tend to see in Star Trek, which is a little bit of a heavy reliance on the universal translators or re-reliance on the universal translators when they don't work, you know? I like seeing the idea of, you know, tapping out prime numbers. Um, it's worth noting that several people over the years have argued that what Picard's taps are are not actually prime numbers. I'm told they even changed this in the Blu-ray, which is what I'm watching for this. I don't actually know if that's true or not, because the DVDs are way over there in storage, but eh. I also like how the idea of the Miserians is something that I wish we'd, un we'd covered more of. The Miserians are a fascinating culture to me because they are pacifist to the point of excess. This is what would happen if the Jedi Order went full stupid, basically. More than they already did, obviously. Because these are people who have been conquered, what was it, like six times in three centuries? Just over and over and over because they didn't resist. They didn't do anything. They are just like, yeah, okay, you win. We're yours now, whatever. Slavery? Yeah, sure, we'll go with that. <laughs> I mean, Really? And I mention that because, as much as I can, of course, mock that and make fun of that, it's a fascinating concept, isn't it? The idea of a race that believes in placating uh, whatever opponents might exist to the point of extreme. It's basically the exact opposite of what is considered a universal biological drive, the drive to compete. This race has has developed, at least culturally and societally, to rather than compete or fight back or resist or any of the other things that comes from that base biological need, to simply be complacent, to accept, and to try and adjust in a way that doesn't actually involve pushing back. I would love to do more stories and concepts with these people. I, I feel like there's actual room for, for some kind of development there. It's also interesting to me, by the way, that uh, Kova Thal, actually wrote down his name right there, actually uh, agrees with the... Uh, he's basically the one who stirs the pot the most. I find that interesting, because of the, the two people there who could actually stir the pot, who are not Picard or the alien, I would actually picture it more likely for the other alien, Esok, to actually start stirring the pot more. The literal anarchist. Instead of the guy who has bowing to authority as a, as a cultural norm. But he is the one who constantly points fingers, insists that what they're doing is irrelevant, and is basically just the stick in the mug, the mud the entire time. I find myself wondering if that's a trait of the people or just him himself. Again, I would love to know more of that about these people. Anywho. Um... I actually don't have much else to say about the the construction of the cell part of things. Uh, there's two other notes I wanted to touch on really quick. First of all, I feel like they did a good job with Essok, although for the longest time I assumed he was a Nausicaan. How long? I found out he wasn't a Nausicaan today when I was watching this episode. 
I'm serious. I was looking up information on the actor who plays him, and I was like, wait, he's a Chalnath? Or Chalnath? What the heck is a Chalnath? And it actually feels weird, but in hindsight, I don't think the Nausigans had been introduced into Star Trek lore yet. And I sometimes wonder how much of the Nausigans were based on these guys. As a quick aside, yes, I know that that's Morn's outfit that he's wearing. Yes, I'm aware of that. Anywho, <clears throat> so, there's this really subtle tip tidbit that I really enjoy where they're discussing and arguing and but Ensign, as per the aliens approach, and I'll talk about this when we switch to the other side with the fake Picard, their approach is to try and establish credentials so that they can't be questioned. That's how they approach their infiltration. It's a smart method. It's basically I'm to use a parallel over on Deep Space Nine I'm not a changeling. Here look, I'll give blood. Right? I mean how many times does that work? So, you know, basically willingly offering right up front something that you know other people use as a demonstrative and then doing it in a way that you can control because you were ready for it. It's, it's a very typical mag magician's trick, actually. Oh, I'll prove I didn't do this. Watch. Hey, look, it worked exactly how you expected it to. I'm clearly legit. Anyways, so she goes to establish herself, but this is the one and only mistake she makes because she actually mentions Mintaka 3. First of all, credit to continuity. That was the ep uh, the episode Who Watches the Watchers earlier this season. Which, you know, I ended up liking more than I thought it would. But I also mention it because if you think about it, and anyone who's paying attention, the odds of a first-year cadet even hearing about the Mentaka 3 thing are low. Not impossible. That's why Picard tests her and actually asks another mission about something she absolutely would not know about. But what's the nice subtle bit is when she mentions Mintaka 3, it cuts to, to Stuart, to, uh, to Picard, and he gives this very subtle reaction. Just this very little, huh. And he doesn't let the rest of it show. And then he tests her, and then from that moment on he has figured it out. Funnily enough, one of the things I do like about this episode is the construction of the narrative shows that both Picard and Riker figure it out, at basically the same time. Which brings us to the other side of the equation. So I mentioned the idea of trying to uh, do the upfront magician's trick thing. The other Picard does several things in favor of this. The first thing he does is he approaches Riker. I'm going to give unusual orders. We, I'm not going to keep you in on, as in on the loop as I normally do. Now all that's very Picard and thus completely you know, normal. Then he goes to the poker game, which is a little weird. And then he approaches Troy and basically does the same thing. Then he goes in for a physical early, so they have medical evidence that he's totally the same person. Then he asks Crusher out for a date. This is the first time they start to slip up. I'm going to go into romantics. Romantics, is that a word? Romance for a little bit here. So for those of you who don't want to hear me rant about romance and fiction, this would be a good time to tune out for a little bit. But I do think this is significantly relevant because this is some of the most actual development of the relationship, both romantic and non, between Picard and Beverly Crusher that we ever get in this show. So this is the time to talk about it. There's a lot... The, the scene between Crusher and Picard, fake Picard, is gold. There is a lot of nuance, a lot of subtlety, a lot of little hints, and a lot of information being conveyed in a very short and efficient amount of time. Like I said earlier, huge, huge credit to Gates McFadden. She pretty much sells the scene in its entirety. Scenes like this are why I wish they did more with Crusher as a character, because the actress has the chops, they just didn't give her much to work with. But I digress. 
So he asks, so first he does something suspicious, and he does it to cover his tracks. Then he immediately puts her off balance by asking her out on a date. She responds, and see, the interesting thing is, she's kind of like a little bit giddy about that. I mean, I would be too if Patrick Stewart asked me out on a date, and I'm not even guys. And, oh, you want me to go out to dinner? Oh, absolutely. <sighs> you know, that initial gut emotional reaction, the first chemical responses there, are sufficient to push her past thinking normally. To thinking in a, the linear, logical fashion that she normally would. She is a smart woman, after all. Then they have the actual dinner. This is when things go a little bit differently, because she immediately notices and, and calls him out on the fact that he's got something on his mind. Now, this is not quite true, but I'll get to that in a second. He, of course, then responds. He's still pulling the magician's tricks, by the way. Another magician trick is to let the other person give you information and basically present yourself in a way that encourages the other person to give you that information, which you then take and run with. This is exactly what he does to Crusher here. So, you know, he just kind of rolls with the punches, so to speak, and he even mentions this thing, how well you know me. And then he starts positing the idea of romance. Watch Gates McFadden's face, because she goes through a lot of emotions in a very short period of time. Excitement, interest, and then just sort of this disbelief, this sort of, like you can almost see her get excited, and then it just deflates, because she realizes it's not going to happen. Now this is interesting too. One of the things I'm most grateful for from these ruminations going back through TNG is the episode uh, The Price, which I forget if that was season two or season three, but either way, because it gave me a new terminology, the difference between a Sunday and a steak. There's nothing wrong with wanting a Sunday when it comes to a romantic relationship, but that's just a treat. It's something you enjoy and then you move on. But sometimes people, <laughs> most of the times, people want a little bit more than just a treat and move on. They want something more meaty. They want something that's actually going to sustain them. That's the stake, right? Just in the off chance you didn't watch my rumination on the price, go watch it. I'm actually really proud of that one because it was a great episode to dissect. Anyways, so what we see here is Crusher is being offered a Sunday, but she looks at it, and that's not what she wants. She is already comfortable with what she actually wants. She has a great friendship with someone who she is close to in a romantic sense and in a friendly sense and arguably more, you could tell based on how she acts that there is a great deal of emotional connection of different types between her and the real Picard. You can also tell that the idea of being offered basically a flirty little thing is just not enough. That's why it deflates so quickly. Because she looks at this like, well, no. And she brings up, you know, this, this can't happen. There are too many variables in the way of this happening. Anybody could tell that. Now, I don't think that... I, should, I suppose I should rephrase this. I've never agreed with the idea that you should never date within the same military corps. I've heard that discussion before, and I've heard arguments in favor and against it. Uh, as applicable here, it's the idea that two people in Starfleet should not be romantically entangled. And I don't agree with that. Uh, obviously, that could apply in specific circumstances, but not in the broader sense. There, <laughs> there are several times in TOS when two people in Starfleet were going to get together, and one of them was going to quit Starfleet as a consequence of that action. It's just... It was just automatic. But this is old hat as far as military uh, procedure. I know, I know, Starfleet's not a military, blah, blah, blah. But what's interesting is there's another phrase, and this one has a lot more practical application. You don't date your co-workers. See, 
if Picard was dating Crusher or was romantically connected to Crusher and she was back on uh, at Starfleet Medical at headquarters heading up new technology and new medical design and blah 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 so they're both still in Starfleet but they don't see each other on a daily basis ironically it might actually be more acceptable for the two to become so romantically connected to each other because there's a lot of problems with dating your coworker. And I, I don't even feel the need to actually expound on this because they're so obvious and it's such a long-standing concept. Now, it could still theoretically work under the right circumstances, but it's always something you want to be a little bit hesitant to. And that's just the very first problem in the way of Beverly and Picard getting together. There are many other issues in the way of that. And, as Crutcher herself points out, she's grown comfortable with the friendship that they have. In other words... It's not that she does not want to be with him. There is very clearly an emotional, romantic connection there, in addition to an emotional, friendly, and an intellectual, friendly connection with him. But at the same time, she knows that's a later thing, not a now thing. She is in no way willing to put down her career, her ambition, her drive, any more than she would expect him to. This is also when she starts to notice how unusual she's acting. And she has a line, which I wrote down here. If I didn't know you any better, I'd say you were playing games with me. Now that line is absolutely fascinating because it's 100% true. This is not Picard. This is fake Picard going off of certain intel that they have on the situation, quite literally playing games with her just to gauge her reaction. And that's all he's doing. And that's and as the scene goes on, the, for lack of a better term, the, the glittering in her eyes slowly fades and fades until she starts to get to the point where she's almost upset about this. And that's, of course, when he decides to say maybe the night should end and invites her to leave, because he's basically lost her. It's a really good scene. It's actually a bit of a shame, too, because it means that they literally have Patrick Stewart and Gates McFadden kiss on camera, but not putting together Picard and Crusher. And I only point that out because there are plenty of people who are pushing for the two to actually have a relationship back in the day. I never even heard of the concept of shipping back in the day. This is just a thing. <laughs> My own mom was one of those people. She was like, come on, just get together. What's wrong with you two? Anyways. <laughs> so after the teasing, after the opening up, after the Sunday, after the playing games, finally she, he, he goes ahead and invites her out. And she's just like, I don't know how to deal with this. What I find most interesting is, of all the people on the ship, this is the biggest sign that he's not Picard. This is, this is why I credited Patrick Stewart earlier. Because he is playing Picard without Picard's nuance. Or, to put it in a slightly different way, he is bullet-pointing Picard. This is, this is why I rail against this concept. This is why I hate bullet-pointing. Why I basically refuse to do that on my own show. Why my ruminations aren't five minutes long. I could make these five minutes long. I could just go down my notes right here. I've only got a page of notes. I could bullet point these. But there is so much depth, complexity, and nuance that you lose when you do a bullet point. And thus, what we see is not Picard. It's Picard light. Make sense? And Stuart does a wonderful job of portraying that. Now, what's funny is he doesn't even get worse as the episode goes on. I mean, arguably his actions do, because they don't call him out on it until he literally puts the crew into physical danger. But his actual actions aren't that particularly far out of bound, or any more or less out of bound than they were to begin with, other than when they finally start calling him on it, when Riker finally takes a stand and says, no. It's brilliant, the way it's pre pre uh, presented. 
I also love the the way that it, it, it escalates there for everyone else. Ales for everyone! Uh, and then he starts singing with the crew, and there's this great bit where Jordy just kind of starts singing along, yeah, and then Picard, fake Picard, wands off, and P- Jordy just turns and looks at Worf, like, then he goes over and sits with Riker, and Riker says, that's not Picard. No frickin' duh. Now, what's most interesting to me, and I, I've railed against this so many times, and I will bring this up in the future, too, on TNG and DS9 both. But there's too many times where someone's acting out of the ordinary in Star Trek, and everyone just kind of goes with it. I'm willing to forgive it a little more in this episode, because everyone is not willing to go with it. In fact, no one's going with it. Everyone thinks there's something up with Picard. They're just not sure what. They don't take any action until they think he's actually giving a legitimate threat to them, which is when he orders them too close to the Pulsar. Oh, by the way, really quick side note. I want to give praise to the visual effects department because they do the pulse of the little flashes of life for the pulsar really, really well. Like, there's a couple of nits every now and again when the camera changes happens, but there's still the same beat of the pulsar consistently as the scenes go on. It's really well done, and it's a great attention to detail that I really appreciated. Anyways, so, Riker calls Picard in for a meeting and basically says, look... What you're doing? What's the mission? And that's how he opens. Now, what I find most enjoyable about this is the implication is there that if this was the real Picard, under these circumstances, and if Riker comes to him and says, "What are our orders?" the real Picard would understand the nuance of what Riker means by that. This has gone beyond tolerance. I need answers. Fake Picard, of course, doesn't get any of that because he doesn't have that. He just has the bullet points. So, instead, he decides to pull a legal threat. His first reaction, this is a classic method of uh, argument and debate, by the way, is to try and shut down his argument by saying, are you sure you have enough evidence to support that? He attacks the specific threat in a legal manner rather than any other way he could try to defend himself, which is a very non-Picard thing to do, especially to Riker. Then he turns the threat right back around on him. I will rele- I'm willing to let this go, if you never bring it up again. So, then they get to the actual danger. Riker calls him on it. What I love about it is he is backed by everyone without hesitation. Well, that's not true. Wesley hesitates. But even Wesley goes along with this. What I love most is that this is all the more powerful in the immediate wake of Sins of the Father. In fact, if I was to reconstruct this episode, I would kind of wish that Worf was the one who calls him on it, rather than Riker. Because Worf and Picard had a great deal of awesome interactions and increased respect and understanding of and for each other as a consequence of Sins of the Father, leading immediately into this episode. Now, it's still there. It's just Worf's more like, no, you're not Picard. I know you're not Picard. He doesn't even have to say it. It's just all there on his face. Again, Michael Dorn does some good facial acting. So they call him on it. They release them. And this is when we get to the part of the episode that's been most dissected by all the fans I've talked to about this episode over the years. Now, I'd like to anticipate your guys' comments, because I figure some of you are going to be like, what's he talking about? And have no idea what I'm talking about. And I'd like to think that some of you are like, oh, I know exactly what he's talking about, and are immediately lunging to your comment section to respond to it. As ever, love to hear your thoughts. The glance. So, they come back, and Picard gives a glance a glance to Riker and Riker communicates to Worf and the two get the thing going just pretty much immediately and they get them imprisoned no vocal communication whatsoever 
Now, that's obviously necessary for the episode because one of the specific points they made was how they were all naturally telepathic and how vocal communication sucks. Thus, Picard doing this is specifically a screw you to these aliens who were acting superior to him and thus, by consequence, to the audience. Thing is, some people have argued so many times about the nature of that glance. Now, for me, personally, I'd buy it, with one exception. See, here's the problem. This, the nuance of Picard giving a glance to Riker, I could buy that. But we don't really see that anymore. This is like the one exception, the one time that shows up. Remember, Picard has served with these people for almost three years now, so I, I could totally buy that they would understand him and he would understand them, especially the direct professional relationship between Riker and Picard, that they could do that. But why does this never come up again? That's what really bothers me, is the fact that this is just a one-time event. And then, okay, a glance. It just raises his eyebrow a little bit. I, I watched it twice just to make sure. There's nothing there. <laughs> now... I, that's actually all I have to say about it really quick. I, I would love to hear your guys' thoughts, as always. I know I'm repeating myself, but I do want to add one final thing. This episode has a bit of a TOS ending, which I complained about a lot back in Season 1. Crusher just shows up and just kind of says, Captain. And Picard's just kind of like, uh, okay. Hmm. And, you know, it's just that kind of da -da 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 -da, ending on a joke, coda kind of a thing that, you know, Season 1 TNG and TOS did a lot. Here's my question to you. Do you think Beverly is aware that this is the real Picard and is just toying with him? Do you think that she's aware that this is the real Picard and is toying with the idea in the long term and thus is just kind of in a good mood? Or do you think she is stupid and doesn't realize that this is the real Picard or that the other one wasn't the real Picard and is just kind of going along with the other fake Picard's advances, which is what's implied by the episode? <sighs> I don't know which I'm willing to, to, to address on that one. The episode structure makes it clear that she's just like, oh no, I'm totally on board with this. Even though its own script and subtleties indicate that she's not. That's why I'm like, hmm. In the long-term scope, I would imagine that she is well aware that this is the real Picard. I mean, the, the medical bay has many, many times been literally just had like a calm open, paying attention to what's going on on the bridge, so it would make a lot of sense that she had actually been paying attention to this, and when Picard came back, decided to come up to the bridge just to needle him a bit for her own amusement. That would make more sense to me. Regardless, I did still enjoy this episode, and I hope you enjoyed. I'll see you guys next time.